0: Okay, Romans 1 verse 16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, and then to the Gentile. Someone wise once said that you always start a new series on the big service uh, weekend, so here we go. New series entitled The Year of Opportunity. We know that our mission as a church is to do whatever God calls us to do to get the gospel across to as many people as we can. In Romans 1.16, it was first to the Christians in Rome, first to the Jew, and then to the Gentile. For us, I don't know, maybe it's first to Bidford, and then to the region, the area, and then to the nation... And then to the world, I don't know. Certainly this year, we've had the privilege of sending two advocates of the gospel to Asia. And the thinking behind the idea of a year of opportunity is more than just a restatement of our mission as a church, the commission that Jesus has given to us, the universal church. But a sense that God is calling us right now, at this time, to a season of harvest. That something is stirring right now. My expectation uh, as I look at the growth and the development of this church has been three phases really. I think the first phase I I describe as the strengthening of the remnant. When when I arrived here, we had 70, 80, 90, 100 people who were loyal, who were at the core, who had been worshipping together, Some period of time, and he really believed that God was going to do something here. And it's so important that that core is strong and healthy and alive. I think the second phase, I'd called it a a gathering in. A gathering in of like minded people, people who believe the same as us, people who want to worship the same as us, people who have the same vision and are driven by the same mission that we are. And we've seen over the last two or three years, people four years. People being drawn in from wider afield because they get what we get. They share that DNA. But The third phase, the one that we long for, is the phase of harvest. Where we start seeing unbelievers drawn in to the presence of God and being gloriously saved. This, of course, is what we long for. We long to have as many as possible hearing and accepting and receiving and walking in the good news. And so for us really the Year of Opportunity that we're launching today as it were has two sides to it. The first side is giving people around us opportunities to hear the gospel, to hear the good news. Whether it be our families or our friends or our neighbors or our colleagues or our teammates or classmates, our community, complete strangers, they need to hear the gospel. And we want to give them opportunity To do that, that's one side. The the flip side is is helping us as individuals to make the most of the opportunities that actually all around us. You know, as as Martin prayed there, a, a strong conviction that God is at work all around us, in every home, in every life, in every situation, drawing people. To the throne, and I walk my dogs around the village every day. And in every home that I walk past, and I pray over some of them as I go. If you live on my dog walking route, that explains why I so blessed, because I pray for you every day. Yes. But in all of those homes, God is at work. God is stirring. God is drawing in different ways through, in the circumstances, often in spite of the circumstances. God is at work. So the question is, what is God doing? Where is he moving? What opportunities actually is he placing right before our eyes? And making the most of those opportunities actually is right at the heart of our calling to be followers of Jesus. But for today, as I, as I launch this series that will take the next few weeks, what I want to do is start off by driving a pivotal stake into the ground. And that right at the very core of this is a strong conviction that Romans 1.16 is absolutely true, is foundational, is critical, and certainly to me is compelling. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. I don't know about you, I've always loved this verse. This verse somehow excites my spirit. Let's break it down. The three clauses to look at. The first one is, I am not ashamed. Second one is, is the gospel is the power of God under salvation. The gospel carries tremendous power. And the third one is, if you believe, you will be saved. So I'm going to spend just a few minutes Uh, Looking at each of those individuals. To start off with, I am not ashamed. I found this quote this week The reason we are ashamed of the gospel is that the world is opposed to it and ridicules it. And we are all far more attuned to the world than we imagine. Has anyone noticed that? The world is opposed to the gospel. Actually, the world wants us to be ashamed. You know, and there's tremendous mounting pressure on Christianity in the Western world. And it's driven by a strong, powerful, and motivated minority. Actually, it's satanically driven. Today's assault goes something like this. You Christians are intolerant and bigoted and homophobic. You're opinionated and judgmental and hypocritical. You're old-fashioned you're unscientific, and you're narrow-minded. Now, I am prepared to concede that that perhaps in a very small number of cases, some of that might be true. Though I very much doubt we're any more poisonous than the people accusing us. But in fact, what I'd say is that if we've allowed the gospel in, if we've started to live it and started to believe it, then the absolute opposite will be true. That, that gospel inside of us will have been changing us slowly and skillfully and gloriously from the inside out. In other words, if we live like Jesus, if we follow his example, if we pursue the things that break his heart, then we will be a million miles from what we are being accused of. But that won't stop us from being accused. The point is that the enemy wants us in our little boxes. He wants us cowering and weak and on the defensive. He wants us to be apologetic. He wants us to introvert and withdraw to the point where we are reluctant. Why is that what he wants? The answer is because he too knows the message of Romans 1:16 and he is afraid of the gospel. Because the gospel is the most powerful force on the planet. And so Christianity, we should not be ashamed. We should not be afraid. We should not be defensive. In fact, we should be the complete opposite. And now I'm not a Greek scholar, as you know, but I do like to dabble. And there are a couple of wonderful words in this verse, Romans 1.16. The first one is the word dunamis which means power. And the second one is the word, word soteria, which means salvation. Sotso, the verb to save. Dunamis literally means dynamic power. Holy Spirit energized. This is my definition. Holy Spirit energized power. The same power that created and sustains the universe. The same power, we sung about it, that raised Christ Jesus from the dead. What does it say? I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power The dunamis of God. And the message is, in this verse, that that same power is hunting you down because it wants to save you. And the word save, salvation, soteria, means more than just salvation. I mean, salvation is an amazing thing. But it means more than just our name is written in heaven. Oh, thank God for that. The word soteria is described as the great all-inclusive word of the gospel. Included in that is the idea of deliverance and protection and preservation and safety and wholeness and healing, all included under the umbrella of this word. And so this verse tells us that that the gospel is the dunamis of God and it's the only thing that can produce and that can work salvation. Soteria. And so there is absolutely no reason for us to be ashamed of it at all. Second one, the gospel carries tremendous power. Paul wrote in Colossians 1, verse 6, he said, The gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it's been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace the Living Bible says the same good news that came to you is going out all over the world and changing lives everywhere. Yeah. You know, the gospel is God's rescue package. All of heaven's resources have been invested in it. It is perfect, it is flawless, and it is unquenchable. And in, in Colossians 1 verse 6, the strong implication is that the gospel is like seed. And if you sow it, it will reap harvest. It has to. It can't do anything else because that's what it does. Because that seed, that gospel, is the very power of God. And so our job, and we'll look at this throughout this series and the next one, our job actually is just to sow seed. And we don't need to worry. As I read this verse, we don't need to worry about that seed. That seed is more than capable of looking after itself. Peter wrote about it in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 23. He says, Having been born again, he said, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. He says, Because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass, the grass withers, and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. That word, that gospel seed is incorruptible. Other versions talk about being imperishable. It's living. It's eternal. And it's enduring. Amen. What does he say? The gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world. The same good news that came to you is going out all over the world and changing lives everywhere. So, if we have this Wonderful, powerful, imperishable seed. Are we seeing harvest? Are we seeing harvest here? Is it growing? Is it bearing fruit? And I'd say the answer to that is yes, a little. And we're very grateful. You know, in the last month, we've had three responses to altar calls for the gospel in this church. In this last month, that's that's not bad. We have a dream of 50 in a year. Three, that's three times 12, is 36, we're nearly there. It's wonderful. But it's nothing like enough. And our mission, which has been given us directly by Jesus himself, is to see lost people found. It's to see the sick healed. The captives released. And broken people put back together again. And a trickle is great. But we want a flood. Pray today, Lord, would you burn that desire, that passion into our very souls? In that verse in Colossians, it talks about the gospel going throughout the whole world. I thought it would be interesting this morning and quite helpful, actually, to have a look at some stats regarding the the spread of the gospel throughout the developing world. And actually, these figures are very encouraging, but also a little bit challenging, too. So, these statistics, I I found them from the internet, so of course they must be true. Um, Operation World uh, in 2010, the Joshua Project, where I got these statistics from. Number one, evangelicals, that's us, in case you haven't spotted that, growing at an annual rate worldwide of 2.6%, compared to Islam at 1.9%, and Hinduism at 1.2%. Okay, so evangelical Christianity is growing faster. i I throw in, actually, if you think about Islam and Hinduism, they have a growth explosion because they are producing many, many, many babies. Right? Look at the population, where the population graph is going, particularly in India and and China, these kind of places. So a huge amount of their growth is natural growth. And what we're talking about in evangelicals is, is conversion growth. Second one. Um, Countries with the greatest number of evangelicals, sadly it's not England, not the UK. Actually, the the, the countries with the greatest number of evangelicals are the United States and China, how about that, and Brazil and Nigeria. Fantastic spread across the globe there. Actually, the country with the highest percentage of evangelicals is Kenya at 48.9%. And the country with the fastest growing evangelical population is Iran. Isn't that extraordinary? 19.6% annual growth. Let's talk about some of this remarkable growth. In Iran in 1979, there were 500 known followers of Jesus. In 2008, there were over 1 million. That is quite extraordinary when you think about the country we're talking about. In China, in 1949, there were less than a million Christians. In 2013, the figure was estimated to be in excess of 75 million. That's pretty dramatic. In southern Africa, in, two, in the year 1900, uh, 3% of Africans were supposed to be Christians. But today, in some countries, it's as much as 50%. And it's said that there are 20,000 new African believers every day. All over the world, the gospel is bearing fruit. In Egypt, there's a huge cave on the outskirts of Cairo. And there, there's the largest gathering of disciples in the Middle East. They say that 10,000 people come to worship there in that cave every week. This is my favorite one of all, Turkey. In Turkey, one-third of new believers say they came to Christ because he appeared to them in a dream or a vision. You see, the gospel carries tremendous power. Colossians 1, verse 6, The same good news that came to you is going out all over the world and changing lives everywhere. There's a couple more diagrams to show you. The next one is, is um, what I've described as the great shift. I don't know how clearly you can see that. But this looks at one column is the percentage of Christians in, in uh, Europe and North America, the Western world. And the second column is the percentage of Christians in Latin America and Africa and Asia, what we might describe perhaps as a developing world. In 1800, 99% of Christians were reportedly from Europe and North America and only 1% from the other area. By 1900, that had flipped to 90% to 10%. By 1985, it had reached 50-50. And by 2010, 31% of the world's Christians in Europe and North America, and 69% in Latin America, Africa, and Asia. That is because all over the world, the gospel is doing exactly what it does. In fact, in the past 10 years, for every single new believer in North America and Europe, there have been more than 30 in developing countries like Nigeria, Brazil, India, and China. But there's also a challenge associated with this. There's a, if you can flip the next diagram up there. This, this diagram is, is entitled Progress of, of the Gospel by People Group. And, and what we have here, the green areas are the ones that are, have got an established, significant evangelical Christian population. The yellow ones, where it's formative or nominal, and the red one is, is described as unreached or least reached. And what we have is this area in the middle through Asia and North and Africa that people call the 1040 window. And interestingly, those are the places where the, the, the poverty is at its greatest, where, where the quality of life is at its lowest. These are the, the places that have the least access to Christian resources. So it's called the 1040 window. Some people call it the window of opportunity. And it really is an opportunity. You know, 86% of the world's Hindu, Muslims, and Buddhists have never met a Christ follower. is that amazing? 86% of people, Hindus, Muslims, and Buddhists, have never actually met a Christ follower. So there is a great challenge still set before us. Here's one last statistic before we move on. More Christians were martyred in the 20th century than in the previous 19 centuries combined. That works out apparently at 480 people in every 24-hour period. Why? Because the enemy is afraid of the gospel. Why? Because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone that believes. And the third Uh, clause in this verse is, if you believe, you will be saved. Let's start off by saying this, the gospel, folks, is good news. Remember that, uh, probably the most famous verse of all, John 3, 16. It says, for God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but will have everlasting eternal life. Amazing verse. It goes on in the next verse to say that he didn't send his son in the world to, into the world to condemn it, but he sent him to save the world through him. Amen. So even though man had fallen so far, even though sin had dug such deep roots, and we see that as we look out into the world, roots of selfishness and, and foolishness and rebellion. Even though man had systematically broken God's holy law, he chose to save rather than condemn. He offered a solution, and we call it the gospel. Someone needed to live a perfect life. Someone needed to be offered as a once and for all sacrifice for sin, by which they could pay the penalty for our sin. By which they could redeem us, buy us back out of slavery. By which they could break the curse of sin and death that held mankind in a strangle-like grip. By which the law could be fulfilled and the conditions of righteousness could be satisfied. By which the enemy could be defeated and disarmed. That enemy who'd set himself up as the deceiver, as the accuser, as the thief had to be disarmed, had to be defeated. And the good news is that Jesus did all of that and more on the cross. Jesus lived the life that we could never live. He died the death that we should have died to pay the price, the penalty that we should have paid. We call it the great exchange, that Jesus died in our place. But as we picture that Good Friday crucifixion scene, it should have been us, should have been you and I individually hanging on that cross. But Jesus did an exchange. He substituted himself for us. And he took our past, our sin, our guilt, our punishment, and he gave us his future, his righteousness, his life. And his freedom. And this, folks, is the gospel. That we can be born again into a new life. Into a new love. Into a new hope. A new purpose. A new kingdom. And ultimately, into a new eternity. This is good news. And we're utterly foolish if we don't embrace it with both hands. But perhaps the greatest miracle of all is all the things that I've just talked about are a free gift. We receive them by grace and not by works. We don't earn it. We don't have to deserve it, fortunately. We don't have to meet some lofty, demanding, impossible standard of holiness and morality. But it's freely given to us, by the God of unfailing love and goodness. The gospel is all of him and none of us, so we can't corrupt it with our grubby hands. And this is why it says in Romans 1.16 that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. So I hear you asking me, if it's a free gift then what's our part? I, I pondered this this week and I, I've come up with five verbs, five things that we have to do. The first one is, the um, first one is we have to believe. And if you look at all the different verses that, that talk about how we are saved in the New Testament, all of these words appear dotted throughout and so we create with these five verbs an overall picture. The first one is we have to believe. Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. Believe means to accept as truth, to be persuaded of, and to place confidence in. Again, just read it, quoted it, John 3.16, For God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only Son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. So verb one is believe, verb two is receive. John 1 verse 10 says, He came into the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people and even they rejected him. Verse 12, But to all who believed him and accepted him, received him, he gave the right to become children of God of God. So this verse adds to the, to the idea of believing. It adds the idea of accepting or receiving. You know, we have to invite him in. We have to open the door. We have to receive the gift. You know, it is possible to reject. God in his grace has given us the free choice to reject that gift if you want to. But why anyone would want to escapes me. So no one believe? Number two, receive. Number three is repent. Mark chapter 1, verse 14 says, Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent means to renounce the old life and to choose to walk in a different direction. Literally, it means changing your mind. So rather than running from God, we now run towards Him. Rather than resisting, we now embrace Him. Here's a quote I I found this week. Salvation is not about improving yourself, it's about humbling yourself. Something about opening the door and letting Him in. And if there's been no repentance, then there has been no humbling and there's therefore probably been no opening of your heart and there's probably then therefore been no receiving and and ultimately no salvation. Number four is to bow. Philippians 2 verse 9 says, God elevated him, talking about Jesus, after the cross. It elevates him to the place of highest honour. And gave him the name above all other names. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess, verse 5, verse 5, that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. You know, what do we have to do? We have to believe, yes. We have to receive. We have to repent. We also have to bow. We have to enthrone Jesus as the Lord of our lives. There needs to be a realignment of our lives such that he is now on the throne and we are not. And as a result of that, we enter a new life of worship and of devotion and of submission to the new Lord. This is hard for many people to do. Sadly, many people refuse to do it with devastating eternal consequences. And the fifth verb is confess. Romans 10 verse 9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God and it is by confessing with your mouth that you are saved. So there needs to be a public declaration of your new decision that Jesus Christ is now my Lord. He is the Lord of my life. I am his and he is mine. Really simple. All of that, simple. But it's incredibly powerful because Romans 1, 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. And the trouble is, you see, people are looking for hoops that they can jump through. They're looking for standards they have to meet or courses, classes they have to attend. But actually, what we have to do is we have to believe. We have to receive. We have to repent. We have to bow. And we have to confess. And that's actually all we have to do because he has done it all. He hung on the cross, and when he said, it is finished, he meant, I've done it. The transaction has been completed. The work has been done. I love this line. Religion is spelt do. Christianity is spelt done. Religion makes it sound as though we've got to do all these wonderful things to earn, to deserve, but actually Christianity is spelt D-O-N-E because Jesus did it all in the cross, in the tomb. Death couldn't hold him back. He burst out, gloriously resurrected. So let's wrap this thing up. Thank you, Lord, for the gospel. Thank you, Jesus, that you came. You didn't sit in heaven waggling your finger at us. You would have been in every right to do that. But Jesus chose to come, not to condemn, but to save. Not to accentuate the problem, but to be the solution. Thank you, Jesus, that you came. Thank you for all you did. Thank you for all that we commemorate today. We commemorate the fact that he died for us, a brutal, humiliating, and agonizing death. We commemorate that his death did what it did, that it paid the price for the forgiveness of our sins, that it set us free from the stranglehold of sin and guilt and bondage that it liberated us to live a new life of hope and purpose and peace and love and fruitfulness. We commemorate today the fact that he rose from the grave, victorious, triumphant and glorious. And He therefore is worthy of our surrender, of our repentance and our worship. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you so much for all of that. We thank you for the incredible free gift, the grace of God lavished on sinful men and women. We thank you that Jesus came and did what he did, that he broke the stranglehold, that he was the sacrifice, that he rose from the grave, Thank you, Lord, that you are at work across this world drawing people back to you. Thank you, Lord, that many of us can stick up our hands today and say, I remember the time when you called my name. I remember the day when I made that decision, said, you know what, today I I believe, I do. Now I I, I recognize I need to receive. Yes, I want to repent. I want to turn away from that old stuff. I want that gone and dead. Now I want a new Lord. I want a new love. I want a new life. Jesus, I confess this day that you are the Lord of my life. Thank you, Lord, that in this room are a multitude of people who've come to that place. I also recognize, Lord, there may be a handful of people who maybe have never done that, have never recognized the gospel for the simplicity and the beauty and the glory of of what it is, that they're unaware of quite how powerful it is to to save a soul and to change a life and ultimately to heal a body and to set a captive free. And Lord, I just pray that just as Colossians 1 talks about the seed being sown and producing fruit everywhere, my prayer is that that gospel seed sown in this room today might take root in hearts and might produce tremendous fruit That last point, if we will believe, we will be saved. Holy Spirit, I thank you that you are calling our names. Thank you that you are drawing us home. And Lord, we want to be so completely convinced and compelled by that, that this church is so outward looking, that we cannot but see someone who is lost and hungry and hurting, and we cannot but feel the compassion And the love of the Holy Spirit just pouring, flooding out of us towards them because we know how much they need Jesus. Because that gospel is the power of God to salvation for everyone, everyone who believes. So, Lord, we glorify you. Jesus, you are the King. We want to place you well and truly and firmly and permanently on your throne, on your throne in this church, on your throne in this region, in this nation, and on your throne in our individual lives. Lord, we bless you. In Jesus' name.